Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, Wildlow's return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman and this is my co-host Scott Daly. Matt, before you stands three choices. Choice A, you make a really good podcast today, but for a long time after, your podcasts really suck. Also, I die. Choice B, thousands of people die, including people you know. But in the long run, Doof Media becomes the greatest media platform the world has ever seen. Choice number C. We delay the podcast for one night, causing unbelievable torture for one of our Doof partners. But there's a good chance that all future podcasts will be pretty good. Choose. Um, so just to be clear, um, I'm not going to die in any of these, right? Well... I mean, I'm, I'm pretty indifferent. It's fine. Whichever. Um, so how are you doing? This is the weekly <laughs> podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wildbo's world of useless wardens, trolley problems from hell and alien based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, Victoria, recovered from recovering from her physical wounds while ignoring her mental ones, decides to keep going forward right into the cell of our favorite I win button, Contessa. Contessa spoils Victoria's victory party by giving our heroes the worst set of choices ever. Matt, how did you feel about these two chapters? Uh, I mean, this is one of my favorite things about this story, honestly, is is these <laughs> moral conundrums that are that are put upon our characters and the interplay between not just not just thinking what would I do, but but understanding like the psychology of each of these characters well enough that you you can try to imagine what they would think. Yeah. And, um, and then you think about like determinism and all these other ideas that are interesting to think about. And, um, and, and just the, the, you know, fate and, and whether you would even accept something like this in the first place. Uh, it's just so rich. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. And th- one of the things that, the story has been doing in this arc that we've kind of talked about in the past is that every time there's like a, a, a point, like a, an uncrossable line, the book then says, okay, well here's a scenario in which it seems like crossing it is the right thing to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the idea of leaving people without food or water or food or showers for however amount of time it takes to get through this battle. Um, then, the decision to kill someone, um, then, then we're thrown this wonderful curveball, and it's just like our, our heroes are continuously pummeled with these situations where, under maybe other circumstances, the answer to these things is cut and dry. It's easy. No, no, that's bad. That's a bad thing. It's bad. No, um, and now it's like, well, may- maybe. Right. And and I think I think that's a challenge for us reading the story. But it's also, as you said, a challenge for every one of our characters. And I am I, I think we're going to tr- attempt to answer the question, what would you do? 
But I agree to me that the, the most interesting question here is what are our characters going to do? Yep. And why? I, I think that's true. I mean, there's also the sense in which between Worm and, and Ward, I've, I've basically gone from being someone who called themselves utilitarian to someone who's just like, I don't know. <laughs> I think that's so funny because I think a lot of people would read Worm and be like, yeah, look, utilitarian ethics. Case I mean, A, right? I mean, that's in there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's not so cut and dried, I would yeah, say. No, I agree. I, to- I totally agree. Um, to the chagrin of a lot of people, I agree. But anyway, uh, let's. I can't wait to talk about them. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think as difficult as, as these choices are and as emotionally draining as the situation is, I think it's going to be a, a fun conversation to have. Yeah, let's do it. Sure. Um. So is this... This this happened, yes. So yeah, yeah that <laughs> yes. So so uh, this week we announce that uh, Media MD, which is run by um, the fellows who do Deep Impact, Elliot and Ruben, uh, that that their their other podcast, Media MD, has also joined the Doof Network. Um, so now, if you you know if you donate to our Patreon account, you'll also be donating to their uh, Media MD podcast and helping to support that as well. Um, yeah. and we're really excited to have them on board. Yeah, we, uh, you know, we've been with working with these guys for about the past six months now, and, uh, we knew they had another show and we kind of started with one to like, to like start slow. Right. And, uh, everything's been going great. So we thought, why not? Let's, let's bring in their other show. We, we love them. We love what they do. Uh, and we think you will too. So yeah, really, really strongly urge you to check out media MD. It's a, it's a media analysis podcast that happens every two weeks or every fortnight as the australians say um basically or one of them prescribes uh, a certain piece of media to the other that they haven't seen before they spend two weeks watching it and they come back and they talk about how they thought about it and then they just kind of take turns back and forth uh it's a lot of fun i enjoy it i, I mean if you, if you listen to deep impact you'll you love these guys so right. you'll love them discussing some non-packed things yeah uh and i, I like um I like their, I like kind of the, the framing device of their, of their media MD show. Yeah, I do too. And, and it's one of those shows where I, I really do recommend just go over to the channel and like scroll through their, their past history and then listen yeah. to any that jump out at you because surely you'll see some, some movie or, or, or show or whatever that, um, you know, that interests you. So. Yeah, absolutely. May I recommend the Rocky episode <laughs> uh, where you can hear my beautiful voice? Or, or the Pulp Fiction episode where uh, one Matt Freeman is a guest. I'm still mad about the score that they gave Pulp Fiction. Yeah. We almost canceled the relationship right there. It was <laughs> over. It was over. Anyway, yeah, go check out Media MD. Uh, you can see their first new podcast on uh, doofmedia.com right now. I don't think we've got the backlog on there yet. That's a very tall, long order. So, um, But from now on, you'll be able to see every single one of those episodes on doofmedia.com. Yeah. All right, Scott, let's get into these chapters. Let's do it. So 15.6 opens up. And, you know, last week you talked about how starting a chapter in media res in combat gave us a sense that the battle was just huge and chaotic. Now we're going in the opposite direction because Victoria is telling us that it's quiet. It's been quiet for 10 minutes. There's this calm and you can't help but think it's quiet, too quiet. (laughs) Yeah, it's our first real lull in the fighting since the arc began, uh, excepting the the interlude that we started with. 
And while that's like a good thing and then it gives Victoria a breather and like an opportunity to to metaphorically get that force field back up that we talked about last week. Yeah. Um, it also makes all of our characters kind of sit with their wounds, both physically and mentally. They're just, you know, when when the battle quiets down, you're stuck with your thoughts and you're stuck with the way you feel. And and maybe the the physical shock that's protecting you from feeling your injuries goes away. But the mental shock that's protecting you from the implications of the things you've just done also starts to fade a little bit. And that's kind of where we pick up with our characters. Yeah. Yeah. I think there really is something to that idea of of her having a a kind of mental and physical shield that protects her in the moment and then leaves her bereft afterward. We're going to see some more shield imagery by the end of these chapters. Yeah, absolutely. So Siren, an advanced guard cape, looks over Victoria's wounds, which makes us aware of their extent. She's got bruising from the gunshot impact to her breastplate. She's got bruising from skimming the ground while flying. I don't even remember that happening. Uh, she's re-damaged her flensed hand, and she's just really exhausted. Yeah. And she insists that she's fighting okay and that she has good instincts, uh, bringing up that instincts thing. Um, but uh, Siren thinks that she should turn back. I really love this recurring beat of instincts. I, I think it's been a fabulous kind of through line since the beginning of, was it only last arc? Jesus. It feels like it was so long ago. It feels like that Victoria was a lifetime ago. The yeah. one that playfully sparring with Annalise while imagining them in the shower. Oh God, that was so long ago. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, I, I do think that she's kind of, kind of tr- gotten to a place where she trusts those instincts a little bit better. There's this whole conversation about like, um, like she cer- she certainly believes that she she trusts the ability that she's not going to like go too far. She's just worried about hurting her friends mm-hmm. and hurting the people around her. But she seems like relatively relatively okay with with her her state of not her state of mind, but with her ability to keep that in check. Yeah, um, I thought it was interesting. I, I don't have her exact phrasing in front of me, but it was something along the lines of like, the, the worst that could happen is I would hurt one of my friends. And I, I immediately latch onto that as like, I don't know if that's the worst thing that could happen, Victoria. <laughs> that's that that's a, it's one of those monkey paw type statements, I think. Sure, sure. Yeah. And I, I wonder, I wonder if that's just a, that's like a little image of her state of mind too, that like, that's, that's, that's a real bad thing. But like, yeah. she's so like, like in tuned with the the horror of the situation that like in the moment that doesn't seem that bad because like the alternative is everybody dies yeah that's true she's definitely normalized a certain level of risk i think you know in in most of the prior battles to this one that would have been you know beyond the pale and now it's basically a case where she really believes anyone could die here and it, things are dire enough that it's better for someone to be injured than for someone to be dead. So, so the risk is worth it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I th- there's a small moment here where she says she doesn't even realize how bad the wounds were until she tried to like sit down with her team. Right. Yeah. And uh, it kind of hits her all at once. And I think that goes into what we were talking about before about like what this lull provides them. And again, I go back to that wonderful shield imagery that you defined last week of this idea that like, yeah, it takes the hit, but then it shatters after and you're left defenseless. So mm-hmm. uh, she's kind of left defenseless at this moment. And and because she's Victoria, that shield will regenerate. She will bring it back up. Right. It will happen eventually. It just takes some time in between those big hits. And she needs these moments for that. Yeah. Right. She needs a she needs a metaphorical minute to lean on Crystal 
uh, and then stand up and pull yeah. herself together. Yeah. And I, I really like I, I like this stuff with Siren. I think it's really interesting because, first of all, we have this guy who she's she's much more comfortable with him because he doesn't have any healer power. Right. Like he's mm-hmm. just like a, a cape that's just doing just standard medical attention stuff like normal non-powers related stuff um just the old-fashioned way of like poking and prodding um and and she's okay with that um not not kind of amy mm-hmm. but it, it's very like the whole framing of the scene's really interesting because she's in this wide open area a door is open and she's kind of hiding behind the door her armor's off her top is off she's pretty exposed and Siren is staring at her like and it makes her uncomfortable. And, and she in this moment says that she's just going to push herself deeper into the mindset she maintained in the hospital when she was letting nurses c- take care of her. Privacy didn't happen when you needed someone else to look after your health. And I just like I love this moment where where she's basically saying, I'm just going to push myself into this mindset uh, that I had w- in one of the worst times in my life. Right. Like mm-hmm. like that's in order to survive this moment, I need to push b- deeper and I, I love like deeper into that mindset to me implies that she's already in that mindset a little bit, right? Absolutely. And she just I, needs to go a little bit further into it. I think that is a very intentional word choice. I think that ever since the moment when Amy touched her, she's been, she's been in that wretch mindset and, and yeah, this is absolutely going deeper. Not just, uh, it's not just, I, I mean, normally she doesn't even, normally these thoughts are, are very repellent to her and she avoids going there at all. I think the fact yeah. is, she's been she's been there for this whole arc yeah yeah and, and that's you know one thing we, we were talking about earlier on chat is is the idea that she's relatively passive in these chapters and and part of that is like yeah she kind of declared master stranger on herself um but i think that was almost instrumental because i mean she did that so that she wouldn't have to make any decisions partially like right. she she she's not in a in a headspace where she should be making decisions it has nothing to do with master <laughs> stranger oh boy let's uh this seems like the perfect time to give her a big old decision yeah, yeah. most important decision ever yeah mm-hmm. yep perfect I, I agree and i think i think the everything we've worked up to leading up to this this big moment in the next chapter is doing that i, I think you're absolutely right the the hanging back version of victoria the the uncertain version of victoria the the one that's reminding herself of master stranger is all leading up to this moment where someone appears in front of you and says sorry you have to choose between three terrible options um and that's your only choice yeah Any, anything yep. else is worse than any of these three terrible things um and yeah i mean that's awful that's awful um one of the other things I really like is like like he's this this is kind of set up to make you think this guy's kind of leering at her because I think that's what she thinks at first, right? Like yeah. she like we said, armor off, top off, um, and he's just staring at her. Mm-hmm. And she's uncomfortable. And and he's a guy named Siren, which I don't want to read too much into that. Like he's he's kind of playing off both meanings of the word, right? Yeah. Um he's He's got the the red and blue like motif of like the the emergency siren stuff, but also like the sea monster siren, which were things that that lured sailors to their death with with beautiful enchanting music. Um, So like there is a little bit I think I think that that just the fact that he's that siren like supports the the kind of leering type of read of this. But it turns out that's that's wrong right like he's not he's not he's not looking at her boobs he's not looking at her chest he's looking at her swollen side 
and how bad it is. Um, yeah. And I, I take Victoria kind of at face value when she realizes like, oh, no, he's he was just looking at right. her injury, which, yeah. you know, it doesn't it doesn't come off weird at all. And but no, uh, but yeah. I, I think I think that 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 brief moment before that where you kind of the book's kind of I, I think wants you to think that for a brief moment. It wants yeah. you to think, oh, yeah, yeah, that's. I think that puts you in Elisa's mind. Uh, <laughs> I just read my wife's name on a, a chat. Puts you in Victoria's mindset, um, where she's just uncomfortable, like, and and she's just scared and uncomfortable and freaked out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's. I I wasn't sure how exactly to nail down the the mental movement that's happening there because she goes from. Uh, it's, it's fine. I, I, I could just go into the headspace where I kind of dissociate from my body and, and don't take any of this personally. And then almost immediately after that, she, uh, takes it personally. Yeah. Um, but, but, but she's wrong to, she's taking, it's just showing how uncomfortable she is yeah. right now in I mean, general. She, I, think. I, I think even, even in this coping mechanism she has, there are limits, right? Like yeah. she, she can disassociate to an extent, but when you're presumably in your underwear, and a dude staring at you, like you're going to jump to conclusions. A little yeah. Bit. Yeah. All right. Uh, there's a couple more things with this conversation I wanted to focus on, though, because there's this there's this moment where she's trying to convince Siren, which is interesting because Siren has basically said, I don't think you should go. I think you should go back. And she's like, but you can't like make me. And she's, it's like, yeah, you're right. Like she does like he doesn't. He's not her doctor. He doesn't report to anyone she's reporting to. His opinion doesn't really matter in like order sense. Like she could just ignore it, but she still feels the need to convince him, which I think is interesting. And I think that goes into Victoria's like, like propensity to reach out. Like she doesn't want to make this decision on her own. She wants, she wants help making this decision. Um, she, she wants someone else to tell her, yes, you can go, you can go forward. Yeah. Yeah. And, or, you know, maybe she wants like a <laughs> if she is going to take herself out of the fight, the only way she would do that would be if someone made just a decisive argument, you know, mm-hmm. oh, you know, Victoria, you're missing a limb and you're and you're bleeding out and you're <laughs> you're going to be you're going to bleed out and be dead soon. Yeah. Like like that. Like, be Anything other than that, she can argue back against. And because it's not at that level, she's like, oh, good. Then I'm right to stay. Right. And, and yeah. you. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but but in this moment that where she's trying to convince him of this kind of stuff and and they're talking back and forth, she says, I don't have as many years of experience at holding back. And his response is, ah, ex-vigilante. And like she doesn't do well with that, right? Like cause she yeah. specifically defines a vigilante in this moment as heroes who eschewed the game in favor of putting enemies down for the long term, if not permanently people that tended to break the unwritten rules. Right. Um, and I, I, this is so great because on the first, like, first of all, she killed someone last, last week. Right. Yeah. So she did put an enemy down for the long term. Second of all, the whole long term thing has been her kind of, you know, modus operandi for the last couple arcs, this, this kind of decision to say, we have to, we have to think about like making decisions that last like a permanent decision. Right. Um, that's been the thing that she's been, been focusing on. And this guy kind of lays that out as, Oh, that's just 
that's being a vigilante. <laughs> and that's what you're doing right now. And also, I mean, she smashed a few people. She threw somebody sure, into sure. a hill. Um, she's, she's done some uh, attempts at permanent solutions, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and I mean, it also framing Victoria in that way, framing Victoria, uh, framing Glory Girl in particular, because when she, this, what she's saying is here, I don't have as many years of experience at holding back. What she's saying is, I didn't hold back when I was Glory Girl, mm-hmm. and so for him to say, "Oh, that that was when you were in your vigilante stage," is also kind of like, "No, I was I was a hero." Yeah, kind kind of. <laughs> yeah, right. Like I think it's just like it's it it's it's. Uh, inadvertently like attacking Victoria right where she lives. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, it's, it's great. It's a great moment because she does, she, you can imagine her almost like opening her mouth and then shutting it again. The text doesn't say she does that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I like that about this interaction actually, where she says something that c- catches him off guard and she kind of takes it back. And then he comes back with this and he's not even trying to get in a dig. He's no. this is just his assumption. And yeah. then it takes her off guard and she, she can't really say anything back to it. Um, it's just a fun like moment of of dialogue. I like the the parallelism of it. It's, yeah. it's cool. I agree. I totally agree. It's great. I like the siren guy. Yeah, yeah. He's he's cool. Hope he doesn't die horribly. Please, please don't. So Swansong and Tress are listening in from nearby, and they also support her decision to stay. Yeah, and I, I like that Swansong in supporting her decision is like, well, I'm staying, so she should stay, and I'm like really super injured. And I think, I mean, I think Victoria's decision here makes that logic makes a certain amount of sense, right? Like that no matter which way they go, they're going to have to be fighting someone. Like if they go back, they're going to have to be battling outward with injured people with them. Um, And so Victoria, I think, has kind of framed this thing as a we've already passed the point of no return thing. Like we have to go forward. Forward is the only way. Um, And I think it, it, it feels like in this moment she's being told by siren specifically but i think but i think by the book at large like it's not like it's not actually too late like you can still turn back you can hang back you can realize that you're too hurt physically and and maybe mentally to go forward in this thing and they don't they can't and the 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 response the the effect of that choice is okay um you're going to go forward well here's the worst decision ever. Congratulations. Yeah. You chose you chose to go forward. You could have backed out. You chose to go forward. And now now you have to do this. Right. Yeah. Narratively, it 100 percent feels like um, the moment. This is the last moment when you could turn back. Right, right. And you've chosen not to. And now we're just going full steam ahead from here. There's not going to be there's not going to be any other moment that feels like you could get out. You, you could plausibly back out of this. Sure. Um and, uh, you know, it, 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 it doesn't feel like that to the extent that it takes you out of the story, but you certainly get that sense of like, well, we've, we've been through this, this terrible battle. We've got a lot of injured people. We've got a lot of dead people and we're, we're moving on from here. And what that tells us is these characters are not going to back down. And, and yep. now we, we know that. Yep. Yep. And that, and then, so I think that's important framing too, when you go into the, the Sophie's choice from mm-hmm. hell, um, that that is coming up yeah right um so i I just love this bit where victoria's thinking about ashley uh they're talking about the the sheen vials that they have and ashley mentions that she would love to take one 
and Victoria kind of, you know, acts like she's surprised. And, and Ashley says, more power, of course. Her, to- her tone was cavalier, casual Ashley. No sign of the shocked, lost Ashley I'd seen before everyone had regrouped and gathered here. But of course there wouldn't be. I'd made the mistake before of thinking there was a villainous Ashley behind the mask of the hero, or a heroic Ashley behind the mask of the villain. There wasn't. Morality was an aesthetic, and that aesthetic came second to her drive to ascend. To look behind the mask meant to find the times that that drive wasn't front and center. Yeah, I really, I really love this. I love this a lot. I loved reading this and I loved thinking about it for a while. And we talked about Ashley. We talked about this moment, right, where Victoria is thinking back to this moment where she pondered about what was under the mask and what was under that mask. And we felt Victoria was wrong about Ashley, right? I think we said that in the moment that I I don't think her read at the time was a correct one. And Victoria kind of is admitting that here, that, that the assumption of, oh, behind this mask is a bad Ashley or behind this mask is a good Ashley. And I think, I think what, what the book is doing here is kind of, kind of, showing that she's more complicated than that. Right. And I think this, this makes me think about, you know, we had so many conversations during, during worm and most of Ward about this concept of there's a person and, and there's their mask, right? But there's the person they show to the world and then there's the person they are. And that's great. And I think it made for fascinating conversation and is a very interesting angle to look at, at people. But I also think people are a little more complicated than that, right? Like it's your personality cannot be distilled down to just the person you show to people and the person you really are, right? It's a little, it's a little bit more complex than that. And Ashley's a little bit more complex than that. And she's, instead of going with this mask metaphor, we're going with this, um, this kind of, uh, priority system, right? Where she, where, ranking her priorities of what she wants yeah and and while morality is a priority on her list absolutely it is not the primary one um and and that's not saying that like that's not saying that ashley's not good like i i I first ruffled at this phrase morality was an aesthetic right because i was like wait a minute no it's not just but to ashley morality is not just an aesthetic i was like well but it kind of is. And I don't mean that in that, like, she's a, she doesn't have morality, right? I just mean that in she prioritizes it in a different way than other people do. And, like, I think the thing we need to make clear here, and I think the thing the text is trying to make clear here, is not that Ashley has now become Swansong, and Swansong is this good, wonderful person, right? Um, she's, she's a complicated human being um, that has good traits and bad traits and has things she's suffering with. And she's not Clark Kent, right? Like she didn't just pass a morality test and then became a paragon of virtue. Like that's not the person she is. And I think sometimes we see like we want to track someone's progress and we say, Oh, Ashley has ascended now and therefore always going to be good. And it's more complex than that. Yeah. Yeah. She, she turned good as, as, as uh, my kids say about, <laughs> right. about, about characters like Zuko who undergo a, a, uh, a reformation. Right. Um, I mean, my take on Ashley at this point is that the heroic and the villainous uh, personae are both manifestations of the same underlying personal drive. And I think fundamentally, and this is maybe a bit cynical, but I think fundamentally she's driven by fear. She's driven by the trauma that happened to her when she was young and in her whole childhood, really. And the villainous persona was a way of reacting to that fear by trying to make herself scary 
um, unapproachable, not relying on anyone, not letting anyone get close to her um, so that, you know, and, and also in charge. And these were all things that she saw as being the, the qualities that would make her um, not need to feel that fear anymore. Yeah. And <clears throat> she lived through the experience of dying and experiencing that that was a bad way of going about things. And so now she's trying a different tack now and she's realized that there are other tools for dealing with that fear and and all of the other consequences of that trauma that still resides in her. Now she does things like reach out to other people. She has friends. She has, you could call Kenzie a, a little sister surrogate, I, sure. I suppose. You know, she, she has people who rely on her. She has people that she relies on and her her drive to be strong manifests differently as well. And these are all just different ways where she's tr tried to channel her impulse. It's what Victoria calls an impulse to ascend, which is a positive way of phrasing it. My take is, is that it's an impulse to transcend that fear using this new set of tools, um, which see in my head, it doesn't actually seem cynical, although it, it, for some reason, <laughs> I feel like when I'm saying it, it sounds cynical. It's I like, well, think I so. mean, we're all driven by not necessarily the best motives. And I think that if we pursue our motives in healthy ways, then that can mean that we're transcending them and, and, you know, being true to ourselves, but, but also being moral. Right. Yeah. I mean, like we've talked so much about the idea of choosing morality, choosing the quote unquote right thing or, or what you value as the right thing, um, is like, action like the whole actions speak louder than words thing right like the idea the, and the fake it till you make it thing right like the idea that there's power behind even if morality isn't aesthetic there's still power behind that like mm -hmm. like it doesn't it, at the end of the day it doesn't matter if you're if you're doing this because it's a good look for you or or it, to complicate that exactly what you said that it's a, a manifestation of her her original fear and trauma um it doesn't doesn't matter because you're you're doing it right like i mean yeah. like the, I, the, that's at the end of the day like i i i i like turn back at the, that idea that like you're saying oh the person isn't truly moral it's just it's just an aesthetic that they that they put on um but so like isn't isn't that kind of true for everyone like <laughs> to a certain extent like what i mean like it gets it kind of gets down to this idea of what is morality um yeah. it if 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 morality is important enough to you to define it as part of your aesthetic, then it means you care on a certain level. Yeah. It's almost like to call something an aesthetic is almost to say that it doesn't have consequences. Right. And to, to, to try to be a hero versus to try to be a villain result in a widely different set of consequences sure. in real life. It's not just like what you're going to wear a red top or a, or a black top, Ashley. It's, are you going to have friends or not? Um, are, are, you know, are you going to go down the crock of shit path or, you know, I don't know the Victoria path, uh, or yeah. it, like, like it, it means something completely different to who, who you end up being at the end of the road. Yeah. So, yeah. um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's, it's definitely interesting. Like I, this is one of those cases where I don't, I don't know if I agree with Victoria or not. Um, I don't know if I agree or not, you know, I, I, 
I think that it, I think that it's more than an aesthetic to Ashley, but also I don't think that Ashley prioritizes morality for morality's sake. I think she prioritizes taking care of the people she cares about. Sure. Um, yeah. And that's that kind of leads to her being a more heroic person. Yeah. I mean, but there's I mean, there's something right. Like if all she does is care about the people she cares about, then she would not have had the reaction to accidentally killing. A that's true. Yeah. So like I, I, she's a complicated character. And I yeah, think yeah. I think part of Victoria's journey to kind of figure her out is recognizing the uh, pardon my uh, pun, not pun, but like it's it actually is not black or white like that. <laughs> that like that's that's what it is. And it's hilarious to say because that's like literally her aesthetic is black and white, but she's not like she's it's it's more complex than that. And it's very it's very difficult to just put her in, in a box or frame her in a certain way and say this, that's Ashley. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's funny. I think it's more than a pun though, because like that's, that's why Ashley is the, is the kind of person who would go from an all black aesthetic to an all white aesthetic. She's, she's, she thinks in binary terms because that's how th- that enables her to clarify her worldview. But that doesn't mean that she is, binary in that way yeah that's a great point i totally agree yeah perfect there's a perfect way to end it let's move on okay so they pass stonewall's group who are being patched up by a tinker with some kind of medical nanotechnology foam um and uh and sveta warns her against using that to help with her hand the power of foam returns to the parahuman universe yep um Um, (laughs) foam is a good foam is a good pull that's for sure yeah um so, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about this to me, Matt, is like Victoria has a very serious like healer like problem, right? She's very uncomfortable and untrustworthy around healers. And I mean, I thought and I think in the past it has extended to the kind of biotinker healing. Um, and I think we've seen that kind of lesson over the course of the novel, um, especially, you know, around around the orchard decision with Sveta. But yeah, now she's like looking at this and she's got this moment of like, oh, I wish I could just have some of that stuff. It really helped me. Um, so yeah. I think we've seen that lesson and maybe maybe be a little more focused. I mean, maybe maybe the, her interactions with Amy like focused her ire specifically than just like I'm afraid of any kind of thing that can heal me. It's now no, nah, just the just the healer types. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, and she's in this much more dire situation where I think maybe she's just prioritizing like like surviving. Um, um, but yeah, yeah, that, sure. that is an interesting point. I mean, if there was um, a, you say that prioritizing surviving, if if this was a a healer cape, not someone with uh, some tinker foam, would she uh, would she do it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think maybe not. I think I think that honestly, the fact that it was tinker stuff and not not a direct healer cape meet like might've bypassed her automatic kind of trigger response. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that was my, I think that was my assumption when I first read it, it was like, Oh yeah. Like it took her a second to even think of it as being a, uh, a power. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, so cool stuff. So, I, so, um, we were talking earlier about the idea that there are a lot of interesting parallels between this attack on the cauldron base and the attack on the cauldron base in worm. Um, and we were able to pull out a lot of interesting either parallels or, or sort of inversions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I wasn't, I don't know if we got to a point of, of saying that we figured out whether that was an, like a, 
an intentional narrative trick done to to make some point, or if it was just, well, okay, yeah, they happen to be ta- attacking a cauldron base, so you're gonna so you're gonna find some parallels inevitably. Um, but like, I kind of made a short list. This is a short list. There are definitely more things to it, but like, a lot of the same people are here. You know, we we've got um, certain of the un- undersiders are here. Um, Weld is definitely here. Svet is definitely here. Um, number man plus his clones are here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Contest is here. Um, uh, we don't have Taylor and her swarm, but we have Valkyrie and her flock. Uh, <laughs> Tattletail's not physically here, just like she wasn't physically at the previous cauldron invasion. Uh-huh. Um, I'm also imagining maybe Kenzie has some sort of parallel or, or mirrored role to Tattletail because she's she is the breakthrough uh, man in the chair character, whereas Tattletail is the undersider man in the chair. Yeah. Um, and then of course there's this idea that, you know, Scion and Eden were these two big, uh, you know, presences at that first attack. And here we don't have Scion, we don't have Eden. Uh, we do have teacher basically according to everything, you know, trying to build a new entity. And I think the coolest thing that, that is sort of an inversion rather than a parallel is that Eden was like in the basement Mm -hmm. of the cauldron headquarters, but teacher's secret weapon is in the attic. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't help but notice the similarity between attic and the idea of heavens and, and all the heavenly imagery that we've been getting. I love that. And I completely agree. Um, I, I think, I think it's, it's, it's really, it's really fascinating. Um, it, like there's one of the things I think we're doing with this is, next chapter we're going to get into this 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 moral dilemma this moral dilemma that is placed in front of our characters where no answers is a good one all of them seem bad um all of them result in pain and hurt and suffering and and suddenly this answer is thrust upon our characters this this kind of this kind of pure utilitarian choice is thrust on our characters and that's very wormy right like that's just like like that that's that's the kind of thing that i think worm focused on a little bit more than this book focuses on so i i I agree that you know, aesthetically, uh, structurally, we are like returning to the the previous book and the dilemmas of the previous book and the choices of the previous book. And one of the things I find so inherently fascinating with that, and we'll get there when we get there, is the idea that maybe this time we have a chance of making a different choice. Mm-hmm. Maybe this time we can we can do something different here because I, I do still think that one of the things that worm is saying is that these utilitarian choices um have the 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 consequences of them are always worse than they look when you're thinking about them and um i mean we have a character here sveta that represents that perfectly and and I, and i think like we're, we're we're kind of going, we're not literally going back in time, but we're kind of going, we're going back in time to this place. We're doing this again. What's going to happen this time? I think that, I think that that feels intentional to me. Yeah. Right. I, I, I mean, I, I was, I was kind of hung up on the, on the literal level of like who is there, but yeah, there's definitely thematic, um, you know, it's a sequel, right? Yeah. It's a, it, it's a sequel. And, We've said many times that 
if 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 the, if the theme of worm is trauma, then the theme of of this book is recovery, and and it makes absolute sense that as we you know I don't know if we're approaching the climax of the story, but this feels pretty climactic. I mean, this feels more climactic than, than anything we've faced up to this point. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I think it, I think comparatively, like the worm worms cauldron raid was like just a couple arcs before the end of war. Yeah. And I'm not saying that that's happening here, but I think, you know, structurally it could slot into the same place. It could. Yeah. I mean, it, it feels, it feels very well like that could be what's happening, although it could go in some other direction. Sure. Of course. Sure, of course. Um, and, and yeah, so, so the idea that we're, that we're putting, we're putting these different characters who've had different experiences in um, what is in some ways a similar situation and what is in other ways, almost an inverse of that situation. Um, And then, like you said, giving them a chance to maybe make a different choice. I think that's, that'll be really cool if that's the way it goes. I'm I'm not certain that it's going to be exactly that, but it's definitely going to be, I I mean, I I feel pretty confident actually that that what we're seeing is some kind of opportunity to see a different spin or a different take or a different angle on um, the same, the same set of ideas. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's thematically, wonderful i mean it's narratively pleasing i think it's it's inherently fascinating to me that like yeah i mean i think one of the things about ward is that that i have enjoyed throughout most of it is this idea that it is very much its own thing right it is the sequel to this book it has a lot of the same characters it's dealing with a lot of the same things but it feels distinct um Mm -hmm. but yeah it is also a sequel right and so Mm -hmm. i think i think touching on touching on the previous book in a really real real specifically thematic way i think is something that the book should do sooner or later and it feels like that's really what we're starting to do yeah i mean there's even this idea that cauldron was this trauma that was perpetrated upon the world yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) um and and the that story ended without really resolving that right and so now we have to return to to that and we have to reevaluate that and we have to grapple with that we, we there was no way we were going to get out of parahumans without having our characters truly grapple with this and everything that it represents and maybe i'm being too specific when i say cauldron um but but there's something i think there's something that's being symbolized by the fact that this is happening in the cauldron headquarters, right? Because Wildblood yeah. didn't have to make it the, the cauldron headquarters. You could have said, uh, yeah, um, there's some other tinker who made like a super vast uh, complex somewhere. Yeah. And a uh, teacher took that over and it's it's super cool and new and you've never seen it before. And I mean, yeah. Wildblood loves his settings, right? He could have made an, a, a, a completely new setting, but he chose to he chose to set it in the cauldron headquarters. Yeah, he chose to set it in the cauldron headquarters. He chose to make the custodian still here. He chose yeah. to make Contessa still here. You know, I mean, like Contessa yeah. could have been somewhere else too. Contessa didn't need to be in prison here, um, and and brought out and brought into things here at the culmination of this of this part of the story. But she is, and so we're doing this. Yeah, and yeah, I I I think we can't underplay the importance of of those choices on the story yeah yeah well, well said so getting back into the story yeah we went off on um, a, quite a tangent there yep so they find that fur kate is hanging out with rain and tristan victoria notices that fur kate's costume is different and that her fashion and uh, victoria's fashion diagnosis is highly positive yeah she likes that costume glowing <laughs> uh 
so so they conjecture that part of the rationale for how the teams were dispersed was to avoid people running into flock members who they knew. Uh, but of course, this was disrupted by teacher. Yeah, but it also, I mean, it's very clearly just like strategic, right? I think they have this whole thing where they kind of guess who's where based on what similar type of capes were sent in on the second wave than the first, right? Because you yeah. don't want, yeah, you don't want people that you know or people from your groups that like, oh, look, there's the dead body of my friend that I'm walking by as I, um, <laughs> yeah. smart, smart, smart. I, I, I really like this stuff with Furcate though, because once again, I think we're doing this like very kind of inherently fascinating, almost backgrounded character progression on her because the whole time we've been in Victoria's not the whole time, but the last few times we've been in Victoria's head and Victoria does not really understand who for Kate is um, and the things that she's been going through, how her power works. She doesn't get any of this, but we do. So like she notes this and, and comments on it in her ignorant kind of way where she doesn't fully understand it, but we can fill in the blanks. We know that the reason why this person's costume is different. So this is like a different version of for Kate and presumably one that more closely aligned with her priority system. Yeah. Right. Um, which is all, has all kinds yeah. of themes bouncing around in there. Sure. And I mean, it, it, sorry, yeah. go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, it's funny that for Kate is the character who we already know kind of dies repeatedly all the time. Um, so her dying and coming back to life is, is just an interesting uh, yeah. added layer to that yeah i love i love this moment when victoria says like either she's you know paying close attention to her aesthetic to change costumes constantly or her power is doing it and that is interesting and it's italicized and it's just like she's such a nerd sometimes right yeah i love it (laughs) yeah i really want to understand the ability of this shard to understand what a cool costume is yeah yeah um that's funny uh, the the other thing that i think we get confirmed here just like a a little bit of continuity is that uh i think tristan or byron i can't remember which sorry guys um does call fur kate she here and one of the things that we I know was wondered about before was that um, had for Kate moved a, far enough along in her transition to be comfortable with that, with that pronoun. Um, we had Victoria call her she, but Victoria again, doesn't know the situation. So seeing someone that understands the situation, call her by that pronoun kind of very, very much signals that, yeah, that's, that's how far along she is. And it's like, it's great. We, yeah. we, we could assume by the numbers, but it's like get, we're getting kind of explicit confirmation within the book. Yeah, that, that, that is cool. Um, I, I didn't even notice that for being what it was. But yeah, that, that we're, that's a confirmation right there. Yeah, I agree. Um, so as uh, as Rain works on a covering for Victoria's injured hand, he mentions that Love Lost and Colt have a whole bunch of Tinker tokens today. Uh, which may partly explain why Love Lost has been even more heartless than usual. Yeah, this is crazy, man. <laughs> yeah. So just to lay out what happened here, um, they needed to go talk to Cradle about something. I don't know, like what? What did they need to like, talk to Cradle about? They weren't going to ask him if he wanted to come, were they? I'm kind of spacing. I thought it was that they were going to send him into Dimension X. Um and they wanted to take away his powers as much as possible when they made the transition. And oh, so yeah, that's why they did right. it. Yeah. So okay. they needed, they needed him to give his coins up. Yeah. Right. Um, and he wouldn't give them to rain. He would only agree to give them to love lost because he hates rain that much. So she takes them. So she's got the, the 
sociopathy or psychopathy coins, right? Right. Um, and and is just kind of hanging around around here, like fully just chilling. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. oh my god! Like I think Victoria even says like, oh god, I didn't realize how precarious this whole situation was. And you're like, yeah, yeah. But I love that the book kind of steps back and like makes you realize, I think Rain is the one who posits this, that like, actually, this is making it less likely for her to just horribly brutalize me because instead of feeling like super angry and furious at me, she just feels like nothing. <laughs> and that's right. actually like, it's actually helping the situation. And I think that's really fascinating because I, I, I agree. I agree with that. Once that was laid out to me, I was like, oh yeah, that's a good point. This probably is better than the alternative. Yeah. It's also interesting how Rain is, in my opinion, a little bit too sanguine about the idea that she could actually just kill him. Yeah, like he's like, yeah. I mean, she could kill me. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't think she will. I, I think if, it's I think that's fascinating because I think it shows like a common trait that like the the stakes of this battle is having an effect on yeah. on the way these guys are dealing with, you know, the consequences of of the people they're working with and, and what they could do. I mean, Victoria's like, yeah, the worst I could do is like hurt one of my teammates. And he's like, yeah, I mean, she could just kill me. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're normalizing things that in the past would have been line crossing for sure, them. Sure. I, I think that's totally true. Yeah. And, and I love like this whole dynamic between the three of them, I think is really wonderful because like you have love lost who still hates rain does not probably want to kill him, but still doesn't like him. Um, still, probably pretty torn about how she feels about him. There's a lot of anger mixed in there, kind of a, a dull and muted anger right now, thanks to those coins. And then you have Colt, who's just kind of like, she very much seems like the, I'm just happy to be here person in these moments. Right. Like where she's just like, like she's, I, I think she says no duh to someone's like comment yeah. later. And like, there's this moment here where rain is using his power to kind of shave off bits of the armor covering. He's making Victoria, but it's it's a creative use of his power, but it's like pretty clunky because it doesn't it's not like the cuts aren't like perfect. They're messy. And she just comes over there and uses her superior uh, superior blade power to just do it better <laughs> than he's doing it. She's just like it's frustrated seeing him and just grabs it and just does better. Um, I just like th this this kind of the complexity of the interaction between the mall cluster is really fascinating to me. And I, I want to see more of them. I really do. Yeah, right. I mean, um, I think Colt, Colt, I think Victoria describes her as being out of it. Like, yeah, it, it, it the way she behaves, it kind of reminds me of like when you're on like laughing gas or something and like nothing matters. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, she just kind of her whole attitude, like she's in an objectively terribly dangerous situation and she just seems to be completely blase and it definitely yeah. seems to be powers related. Yeah. And but this this leads to kind of a this moment that we have between Love Lost and Victoria here where uh, Colt says that she wants off, like part of Love Lost's agreement in this whole thing in both taking the coin, being, being willing to take the coins and being willing to come out here and help out was that she gets a day off every year so she can visit her daughter uh, who is is deceased. Right? Um, right. So this is literally just I want to go to my daughter's grave type thing. Um and Rain is immediately like, I wasn't going to bring that up, which is, again, a, a wonderful little insight into the dynamic between these two characters, because like Colt just doesn't have tact like she just yeah. doesn't. Um, but we have this moment where Victoria like understands it and says, I did something similar. I used to go back home where my family was, pay a visit, leave flowers or pictures I seen matters. 
Um, and they have this moment here where like, I mean, they're not like BFFs now, but they like this moment of understanding. And I, I thought this was fascinating. And, and I kind of I kind of went down a rabbit hole and special thanks to Kayakin who helped me out finding different pieces of this because they are like the world's best uh, worm passage searcher in the world. But just like these moments throughout their relationship that are pretty complex and pretty more complex than I think a lot of the other Victoria and villain relationships in the story. Right. Um, because there's always been, I think a little bit of empathy here from Victoria, right? Like you go back to the moment where she finds all the pictures that love loss has kept of her daughter on the computer. And despite destroying the evidence and messing everything up, the one thing Victoria does is leave a note that says, we're not going to hold these hostage. You're going to get these back. Don't worry. I'm not going to use these as a bargaining chip or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, there's care there. And I mean, there's, there's all kinds of instances where she's angry with her. She's mad at her. Um, she doesn't particularly like her. And I'm not saying like Victoria likes love lost or anything, but I think there's, there's something to the, to the effect of like this law enforcement officer who is kind of a shitty mom. Um, who, who lost her kid and lost her way a little bit, um, that Victoria relates to like, is love lost kind of a Carol sort of maybe a little bit. Yeah. I mean, as soon as, as soon as you said that, I I thought that was definitely in there somewhere. Um, at first I was thinking, oh yeah, Victoria sees a lot of parallels between herself and love lost and, and feels empathy with her. But, but then the, the, the realization that like she lost her daughter and, She's definitely older. Um, that yeah. makes a lot more sense to me. That she's she's seeing she's seeing in Love Lost a, a kind of fallen Carol or, or something. It, it's interesting because <laughs> I think there's I think there's both Carol and and Victoria elements. Um, I agree with there, that. Yeah. There's like what Victoria is is afraid is true about herself. Sure. Um, but I mean, it's interesting to me because you're exactly right that she has almost too much empathy for 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 this this vicious person like like she's way harder on Etna than she is on Love Lost sure um and 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 Etna is definitely someone who she sees unflattering similarities uh with maybe subconsciously um so 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 that may be more evidence that it's actually more more that she sees her mom and Carol rather yeah. than herself. Yeah. And of course, back, uh, I think when we first learned what happened with love lost, um, rain is, is relaying this information to breakthrough. And Sveta specifically says, I'm tired of shitty parents like Kenzie's like Victoria's. So that, that line has been drawn here for us. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And, and I think, I, I think I like it because I think it kind of demonstrates to me that, you know, I, I think there's, there might be some people listening to right now and going, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Victoria hates Carol. And my response to that would be, no, she doesn't. I mean, she doesn't like she she has a her mom can be a real jerk sometimes and she frustrates her and she angers her. And there are moments when she hates her. But I think her relationship with her mom is more complicated than that. Her relationship with her mom, like she wants to impress her mom sometimes. Like she wants she wants her mom to love her and she wants to feel that love. And, And that's a complex thing. And I think it's not crazy to think that someone that you know, subconsciously even reminds Victoria of her mother would have a a complex relate. She would have a complex reaction to that person, moments of empathy, moments of extreme frustration, moments of anger. Um, I think there was one moment when she learned that love lost helped 
helped cradle with the with the machine that that cut everyone up and she said well fuck her then right like like yeah. it's it's i think this all this to me this all tracks really really well and i like it a lot absolutely yeah um I, I, no, nothing more to add I, I think that's exactly what's going on in that dynamic man we uh we just keep going on tangents <laughs> it's it's good yeah i mean it, i think there's some deep veins to be mined in this story so yeah um So Victoria gently uh, ditches the major malfunctions as well as a big chunk of others. Um, I mean, more seriously, the the other group goes (laughs) in the direction that Saint fled while Victoria's group uh, goes deeper in the facility. Yeah, and I really like this because like we we get the framing device here that they're like, we need to a smaller group needs to go forward here. We can't take all these people with us. So we got to get smaller. So we've got to tell some people go the other direction. And Victoria makes the decision here to basically tell Fume Hood and the malfunctions you guys can't come with us. You guys got to go with these other people. And I find this pretty interesting because the last two chapters, and, and I think we're reminded of it here specifically in this moment, she feels a responsibility for these people. She feels like they are here because I got them into this. I was one of the ones that talked Fume Hood into giving the hero thing another shot after everything that went down. I was the one that really pushed for the, the malfunctions to step into the big leagues in the way that they have. And now they're here. And and in this moment, she kind of says like, like, as much as she feels that personal responsibility, as much as she feels like it's her duty, it's her role to watch over them. She's kind of recognizing that she's got to, she's got to let those birds leave the nest and, and got to trust that they're going to be okay without her or, or that, or that she needs to realize that their out, the, their outcome in this battle is not her responsibility anymore. Yeah. I think there might've also been an element to like, um, she thinks that maybe the direction her team is going is the more dangerous direction and she wants them to go in the in the in the less dangerous direction. I don't I know mean, if I I don't know if that was in there or not. I don't think that's explicitly in there, but it seems like it's the opposite to me. I mean, like they know they're specifically going towards the center of the danger, whereas I, I think Victoria is not even sure where they're going yet. Yeah, I guess I wasn't sure if um, if Victoria wasn't sure or if Victoria knew basically where they were going, but was not actively thinking about it um, in order to hide it from us via dramatic irony. <laughs> yeah, I don't um, know. I, I hope yeah. not the latter because I don't like that. You're not a fan of that, I know. <laughs> um, um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, do you think I mean, like, because part of my reasoning for this or, or when I'm tr- thinking about this is. I mean, yes, the the surface level, hey, we just need less people. So someone's got to go the other way. Might as well you guys like I'd rather be with my team. Sorry, like we work better together. But also like. It's, it's like. Do you think like maybe Victoria doesn't feel like she can be the person that watches out for them anymore? Like hmm. maybe the, the choices that she's made, the things that she's done, they're better off not under her eye at this moment. Like that's a, a reflection of how she's feeling about herself. I don't know if there's a lot of textual support for that, um, but that's just an interesting thought that occurred to me. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I, I can't think of any particular like direct support that that's the motivation for this, but but we do know that her headspace right now is one of, you know, self-doubt and pretty low pretty low feelings about herself in general um yeah so, yeah that makes sense and and i mean i don't think she i think last last week we talked about the idea that she felt 
uh, this was also us kind of reading between the lines with this idea that, <laughs> that maybe she felt like a hypocrite in front of them, like like giving all this highfalutin heroic advice to them while like her foot is covered in gore from yeah. someone who she just executed. Yeah, maybe she just feels unworthy of being that person mm-hmm. now. Yeah. yeah, it's an interesting read. I I think you know, it's, sure. It's I, I'll say it's valid. It is you know you don't need to prove it. Yeah, um, no. I, I yeah. yeah. It, it in the end I don't think it matters too much. It's just kind of I, I'm just trying to get into Victoria's headspace a little bit sure. here. You know. Yeah. So. Lookout disarms all the bombs in the area, of which there were many, apparently, uh, because Lookout, she can do that. <laughs> yep. Uh, as they move into the control room, Lookout's mask takes over more and more monitors, uh, and then she begins to pipe in the video feed of teachers' defenses, as well as some of the groups of heroes who are being pinned down or who are already defeated. This includes yeah. uh, Chevalier and Narwhal, who are who are down. Uh, Valkyrie is is injured or incapacitated in some way, and and Legend is pinned down. It's not looking good. No, yeah, I, I really, I think this is a really powerful moment. Teachers group, like we get this this big contrast, right? We have all of our heroes, some of the most powerful people we know, hurt, being carted off by their flock, or or just completely pinned down, and then we have teachers group kind of standing there casually. Just they seem totally relaxed. They seem totally cool. Uh, teachers just like casually like shaking hands with more and more people like creating thralls every moment uh the only one that is any kind of upset is saint and and good fuck that guy but um yeah i mean like this is this is kind of our all is lost moment right like conceptually our our worst heroes are out um look how many of the bad guys there are there's so many of them there's so many capes here and most of the most powerful ones are on the bad guy side and 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 now we're in the situation where suddenly our heroes fully understand this is it that what they're doing like th- this thing that imp has said will guarantee them a victory 100% chance imp says is now the best chance for victory they have right like like the the book has clearly shown they're they've lost almost like the the, the main force seems to have have either lost or been completely stalled in a way that any kind of reinforcements probably not going to get them over the hump. And, and suddenly everything rests on breakthrough and company. Yeah. Right. And, and we don't see at this moment how they're going to get through that. Like there's, there's no, uh, okay. Yeah. You can make rocks appear and, uh, and (laughs) yeah. Um, but you know, pretty soon we're going to see the, the hope, um, yeah. But I, I think that framing is really important though, because I think in order to understand the severity of the situation in which Contessa, you know, leaps into in the next chapter, mm-hmm. we have to understand that like they're fucked. <laughs> like, yeah. right. Like, like I think yeah. it's really, I think that's really important framing for everything that happens in the next chapter. Sure. I, I actually think that a lot of, of minor things in this story throughout the whole story will reveal themselves to have been framing to set up this idea that, um, pulling a Contessa out of a hat is is like a, a a narratively necessary and appropriate thing that needs to happen here. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, what, what I think Waldo very very intentionally and intelligently like shuffled Contessa off the board um, during Gold Morning, like she was just like out of the picture and, yep. and, until the end, basically, and then she and like it was all over by then. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and now she's very intentionally being brought back into the picture like like uh, in in a in a well set up Chekhov's gun fashion so um it's it's just interesting to track all of the decisions surrounding that choice yeah. uh, which I, I again i think have been sort of made in the background throughout this whole story i think i think you're probably right yeah i like that so um kinsey reports the teacher wants to talk to her victoria tries to persuade her not to uh, under any circumstances uh, do not do that <laughs> yeah and because um, kinsey always listens right there's uh-huh. a there's a zero percent chance that she ignores Victoria right here. Right. Uh-huh. Especially since Kenzie is extremely emotionally fragile and teacher will probably like placate her with compliments on how great she is and how important she could be and how powerful she could be as part of a group. And and oh, how amazing and uh, stuff like that. That's not going to have any effect on Kenzie at all. Yeah. No. And, and Victoria and, and Kenzie, who thinks that like communication should be open and free all the time and yeah. there shouldn't be any secrets yeah plus the the line about like um but wouldn't distracting him help like she's so concerned with helping it's just like mm-hmm. it's there like there is no doubt in my mind that kenzie completely ignored this advice and just talked to teacher because like, i mean look 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 at how she even says it here look at how like kind of like depressingly uh <laughs> I don't even know the right word, but like her message appeared again in a spot that was hard to read. Then as I watched, the letter shifted, moving down, down, down until they were superimposed against the space beneath my eyes field of view, written as if I could see through my cheekbone to see yellow letters against pink black background. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That's so cool, right? Yeah. Like. I agree. It's 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 a uh, it's the first time for one thing I've ever seen someone describe letters superimposed on vision dropping below your actual skin so that you, you're like seeing them through your flesh. Like it's, it's such a weird image, but like you, you I, I bet everyone who's reading like immediately kind of like stop reading and then like look down to see if they could replicate that effect in their imagination. Yeah. I sure did. It's just like it's just like it goes so far out of the way to make it difficult to see, right? Like it's it's yeah. just like in, it's it's almost kind of nuts in yeah. in in that it's like so and it's like oh god, like that's how she that's how she acquiesces there. It's just be like okay. Yeah. I mean it's like it, right, okay. it's like it's like a visual representation of a of a droopy Eeyore voice. Right. Right. I love it. Yeah. Ugh. And and like I think this combined with this idea that like, you know, throughout this chapter, we've been noting that um, we've been noting that Kenzie is suddenly kind of like winning against teacher in, uh-huh. in, in the hacking war that's going on between them. Like, I think I think it's Ashley who specifically says, you know, Kenzie's not normally successful against teacher when he's throwing all his resources against her. Um, and, and so like the belief there is, oh, maybe this has disrupted him enough to where he's just not at full force. And so she can, she can battle her way through his defenses. But like the pessimistic read is like, maybe he's just like letting her because like, first of all, he's pretty confident that he's going to win, like getting into his systems to be able to, to switch to cameras to show how the state of the battle is going does not make the heroes confident. Like, and and maybe it's part of reaching out to Kenzie and it's part of this manipulate. Like, I mean, we've had this kind of like open thing where teacher was specifically targeting Kenzie as someone yeah. 
that he needs to deal with. Right. Um, and I don't know. This is just this is just terrifying to me. Yeah. I mean, speaking of things that have been set up forever, like uh, how long ago was that? When, <laughs> so long ago. Yeah. Um, I, I, I agree. Something something is going to happen here in the background. Uh, th- this is building towards something. Yeah. 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 Um, so <clears throat> teacher, uh, sorry, chastity points out that one of the capes, um, with Valkyrie, uh, is, uh, what might be of interest to imp. And, uh, we have no idea who this could be. Yeah. Nobody important. Surely. Yeah. Um, imp plays this off about as coolly as is humanly possible, but Victoria still absolutely picks up on, on her dishonesty here. Right. Yeah. And, and, and part of what I was trying to do on my rereads of this chapter is really kind of like stack up reasons why all of our characters decision-making ability might be impaired going into this next chapter. Right. Uh And I think like, do you think that imp seeing her brother alive in this moment is going to kind of fuck with her reasoning ability a bit here? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Like I just, I just, I, I just got my brother back and now you're telling me that an undersider is going to die. (laughs) <laughs> I wonder, I wonder if that could mean, you know, you know, right, like, right. Yeah. Like, is he an undersider still? Right. Um, or maybe not know. even him is like, I got one person back, but you're going to take another yeah. away from me. Like, I mean, exactly. like, I, I, I totally agree that so many of these moments are like, look how, look how not in a position these people are to be making calls like this. Right. <laughs> but yeah. we're going to put, I, we're going to put the fate of the world onto their shoulders. I don't remember if we, if we, you know, marked it out or not but the idea that ashley has has accidentally killed someone is yeah yeah just the worst thing that could happen before putting this kind of decision in front yeah. of her kenzie has just learned that her her new team doesn't really care for her um or or might, might want to ditch her um victoria is victoria um tristan is a fucking mess right now yeah and i'm sure that affects byron um rain is rain is doing okay but yeah, like rain's dealing yeah we're, that's uh, lately been our thing, right? As we go I, through I, the breakthrough, we always get to rain, and we're like, you know, it's doing I, okay. I think the I think the the fact that Love Lost and Colt are here can't be uh, super positive for his mental state, right? I now. I agree. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Plus, he just had to like make a call about murdering someone last chapter, right? That's like, true. Yeah, like he seems okay, but I'm sure that wasn't an easy decision for him either. Yeah, I mean, he kind of. There's, it's been very rare that he doesn't seem okay. It's it's usually coincided with like him getting love lost's uh, teeth or whatever, yeah. um, like yeah. like weird weird stuff like that. Sure. Um, or or you know being in the most stressful period of his life during his arc. Sure. So yeah. anyway, uh, so they reach a critical hallway and they are abruptly attacked by the overseer. She tries to use the environment against them in clever ways, uh, in addition to, of course, hitting really hard, moving quickly, and being impossible to harm. <laughs> they survive the fight, uh, buying imp time to retrieve the person that the overseer was guarding, Taylor Hebert. I mean, uh, Contessa. So that was a thing? Like, I miss all this, like, stuff it, when I don't read the chapters till the end of the week. It was a minor thing. I, I mean, I think maybe a few people thought it seriously, and then I think it became meme status where it's like... <laughs> It's like, ah, that description could technically describe Taylor. I guess. Even though we know for a fact that Contessa is here and looks like that. Yeah, I kind of like, I mean, to me, and I, I maybe not everyone did this, but to me, like the second custodian showed up, I'm like, oh, they're probably going for Contessa. Right. Like also, I, also Taylor's missing an arm, folks. Yeah, that's true. Anyway. No, it healed. That's what happens on uh, Earth. Aleph. It, the yeah, arms, yeah. Okay. Arms good. Good. 
Okay. All right, let's go. It's 15.7. The chapter immediately confirms who it is. It's Contessa. <laughs> uh, she defends an onslaught by the custodian uh, while still stiff from her pseudocoma, using a combination of precise movements and commands intended to provoke exactly the right response in the other capes. Yeah, I think this is a really great opening to a chapter, and I think it's really important to what this chapter is working to set up because, like, we, we've had throughout this entire arc, we've had defeats, we've had wins, we've had wins that just feel like defeats, and and everything, and it's just gotten worse. And then Contessa busts in and just flexes her path to victory muscles, and it's so wonderfully satisfying, right? It's just like every she knows she's ordering people around with confidence. Everything's going right. Uh, like just rain fucking flubs the tool throwing, <laughs> but it doesn't matter because her path to victory. Yeah, <laughs> her, path, her path to victory is so powerful. It can it can counteract rain. It, which is it, <laughs> her, her back to vic- her path to victory counted on him flubbing it. That exactly. was the whole point. Exactly. It's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it is this it is this moment of like, like almost kind of bliss where you're just like excited because you're like, yeah. if this girl's on their side, we got a shot. We got a shot now. Yeah. Like this is this is it. And, and, and I think imp plays a wonderful role in this that we'll get to in a, in a bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's, let's hold off on that. Yeah. So like you said, everything's, everything's great. You know, we got custodian who's been set up as being really strong, but, uh, Contessa is able to fight her off and then, and then beat her by telling her the teacher is going to ask her to tear down her masterpiece, which is this building. Um, and that, you know, she's going to come to hate him and herself and, and this drives her away. Yeah. And, and this is one of those moments that I think like if there was no custodian interlude, this would have been a good moment. Yeah, it would have yeah. worked, but that's not enough for this book, right? It's not enough that it works. We got to see custodians interlude. We got to experience and we got to learn about this person. So this moment is so much more impactful because when, when Contessa says these things, it isn't just a reveal about a character. It lines up to everything we understood the character to be. And there's, there's a satisfaction in that as a reader, when your understanding of a character, your read of a character is supported by another character within your story. Um, it's, it's satisfying. And you're like, yes, I understand. I get it. I get her. I get why this would work on her. I totally get it. And, and that's, again, we said this a million times, but that is what the interludes do in the story. And that is why the interludes are fantastic. Right. And and I think it's, it's cool because, you know, Contessa's back. We see, we see a fun Contessa combat scene where things work out improbably well for her, but then she doesn't win through combat. She wins through basically, you know, the four words type of victory where she, she just says the thing that will win. Like she doesn't even necessarily know anything about custodian this, yeah. is, this is your power puppeting you know these are the words you say to get her to leave mm-hmm. um which uh, has implications right because that's because pretty much the whole rest of this chapter depends on how we interpret contessa's motives yep which yep. <laughs> which i think people have been talking about for like a week now so i don't know how we're gonna fit all of that into the rest of this podcast but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to touch on some things poorly poorly <laughs> yeah so um it's pretty important to have imp here right like the scene would work without her but it really helps to have imp who's already familiar with her power uh participate in the elucidation of the pact of the path to victory um 
and even throwing in some fun conflict as Imp is increasingly disappointed, uh, much as we are, the reader, uh, that Contessa can't just provide an instant win. Uh, in fact, to hear Contessa tell it, it's like too late for her to do almost anything, anything meaningful. She says, I can't defeat him, spare as many of your allies' lives as possible, and save the lives of the people in the city. Not as I or my power understand circumstances, and my power understands everything outside of, uh, you know, et cetera, blind spots. Yeah. Um, and that's 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 Wildo telling us, and Contessa telling the teachers, uh, the the what did I say? The readers. <laughs> the 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 characters. <laughs> the <teachers>. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading the word teacher. You've when been I said teacher that. whammy. I've been whammy, yeah. Um, that hey, this isn't going to be uh, an instant win card here. Yeah, it's gonna. It's we're we're about to, you know, p- prepare to be disappointed, everyone. It's it's parahumans time. Yep. yep. And 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 imp is. You're absolutely right that imp is key to all this working. I think. Uh, not only is she here to fill Victoria in on uh, the exposition of how Contessa works, but she is the audience surrogate in these moments, right? She, yeah. she, like we do, knows what Contessa to do. And she, like we do, knows what Contessa means for the fight. And at the start of this chapter, as we said, we're really excited. We're just as excited as Impin. We're like, yes, this is it. This is the moment. The I win button is here. And then the reality of the situation happens. Contessa lays it out for us. And it turns our simple guaranteed I win button into a button that has a whole lot of blood on it. And once again, our disappointment is echoed in Imp just like our excitement was. Her frustration, her anger, that's us. That's how we feel. And and that's when you kind of realize that this is, I mean, we never should have felt this way. We never should have been this excited. We never should have felt that this was going to be the simple solution because that's never what Contessa has been. Contessa has never been the clear, simple, uh, you know, like innocent, no blood on your hands solution to the problem. It's always been a a, a, a a path to see things that is filled with trade-offs, horrible trade. I mean, that that's literally what she says later in the chapter is like when, when you start with the end result, everything in between is tough decisions and trade-offs and, and horrible choices. That's just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a almost shocking way of, of viewing the way her power works. And yeah. I mean, we, we sort of had some insight into this because we did, have an interlude with her. We've we've understood her role in the story, but yeah, it's it it exp- it explains very clearly how like it's her life is not this cakewalk because she can't get any outcome. She can just definitely get an outcome yeah. that is achievable. Um, but that doesn't mean all outcomes are achievable. Yeah. Um, and then of course there's the the factor of blind spots, which I think, um, which is gonna you know. Which are fascinating because she is underplaying them in a way that I find really interesting. And mm-hmm. and I think I think you're right that part of what we're doing here and especially helps that we're in Victoria's head, a person who just knows her as the boogeyman and not anything else before this moment. Um, we're trying to suss out her her motives here because we don't we don't really know what her goal is, what she wants. Like, I, I'm sure there's a, a real desire to take her at face value and everything she's saying, but. We don't know. Like, what What? What do you want? What are you yeah. trying to do? What is your goal? Like, what What private questions are you asking your power that you're not letting the rest of the group in on, right? Um, right. And I think that's a really fun wrinkle to this whole thing. Um, I think Contessa, you know, plays herself off as a person that's being 100% straightforward, is laying out the choices for you, 
in the best possible light with with the way that makes it the most possible for things to go that way. But I don't I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, she also ad- admits to like <laughs> she admits that she could convince them to do whatever she wanted. Right. Um. So like on the one hand, she's she's trying not to be manipulative, but also she's admitting to them that she could completely manipulate them. And it, well, I, man, her power is inherently manipulative. Like it yeah. can't not be. It's like, right. I, I don't know. I don't know how you don't manipulate someone when you can see the path yeah. to an outcome you want. Like, uh, yeah. I mean, one of my favorite things about, I, I, I love a lot of her lines in this chapter, but I, I think one of my favorite is when, when Sveta goes, how do you know all this if you were in a coma? The Seamurg, who's where, what custodian is doing? And then she replies, I'm finding it out as I explain it to you. I asked my power for the path to provide the explanation I need to give that serves the purpose of filling me in on present circumstances. When you talk amongst yourselves, I'm asking my usual questions. So, so like, like she, everything she's saying to them, every word coming out of her mouth is shard puppeteer work. Yeah, yeah. It's Which is even more like uncomfortable in the context of like wait a minute we don't really trust the shards at this point <laughs> um will you say at this point as if there was a point in which we did before we knew what they were i guess i mean <laughs> we just thought they were ah, oh, cool superpowers um Fair. but like setting aside the fact that she could just be like actually secretly working for teacher uh yeah. we can't even be sure that that's not the case yeah um she's I don't know. Victoria, I think I think the point is setting aside what we know, the readers, Victoria has like no reason to trust this person. Yeah. 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 And I, I love that passage you you picked out there because I think it's like a really also a clever way of reminding the reader about the details of her power. Because like, mm-hmm. I mean, like structurally, we the readers of this book have not dealt with Contessa in like years. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're if you're reading along live, like lots of years yeah and but so so there needs to be a little a a few beats in the story that just remind us of the details of this power because i think it's important to understanding the difficulty of the choice to to have a full clear picture of what her power can and cannot do yeah i agree so scott Uh, let's lay out out these options that contessa gives them all right a many heroes will die including contessa one undersider and two heartbroken, and one member of Breakthrough will suffer practically indefinitely. Casualties are mostly confined to the capes of the facility. Teacher's plan uh, is disrupted or mitigated, whatever that means. The city does okay, although the villains rule for a period of time. Yeah, so this is like the short-term heroics chapter, right? The noble heroes sacrifice themselves to win the day, and it's a short-term victory, but long-term bad. Long-term bad, but then eventually the villains are are taken out of control, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Option B, let teacher initiate the plan before attacking. Hundreds of thousands of civilians die, including a handful of specific ones known to the heroes, I guess to make it feel more meaningful to them. Uh, The heroes win and retain control over the city. In the long term, objectively speaking, it provides the best, healthiest outcome, uh, Contessa editorializes. (laughs) Not at all influencing them. Right. Yeah. Um, so it is, this is the, the pure utilitarian option, right? Well, um, like hundreds of thousands. See, that's the thing is I was like, man, you could have communicated this differently. Contessa, how is hundreds of thousands of people dying healthier than 
the villains ruling? Like, are the villains going to kill hundreds of thousands of people? Like, they might. what is the, they might, but you don't say that. Like, like, like when you say the villains rule, that's just a big old question mark. Like wh- which villains? I, I, I like, this is my big, okay, let, let's finish before I get into that. Okay, okay. sure, sure. Option C. Teacher gets away. His plan is disrupted. Heroes suffer moderate losses. The city suffers moderate losses. Uh, two members of Breakthrough are removed from the from the equation. One endures torment for, quote unquote, quite some time. Um, zero undersider deaths, but one heartbroken death. Yeah. So okay. this is the kind of the the. Um, eh. See, okay. <laughs> the middle of the road option. Yeah, I guess. This, this is the middle of the road option. Um, like, okay, so I guess we talk about what we think first. I, I, I mean, this is this is. I think we need to talk about this 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 trolley problem, the the frame device, the framing device of it. Because, like, uh-huh. let's. I mean, let's let's be frank here. I have always hated trolley problems uh-huh. I, I, because I think they are fascinating um, intellectual you know studies right like it it is it is fascinating to think about this this problem and and to to logic your way through it in a way that you try to come up with the best possible or what you think is the best possible outcome they're fine abstractly they don't work in reality because in reality you never really have all the data right like you never truly know if if the if the choices are as binary as the trolley problem makes them seem right, you never really understand that. But what this, what, what Contessa is trying to do here is basically take that complaint I have away, right. To say like, okay, well in this case you do have all the data because that is what I do. I provide all the data. So the, like she's almost the only way in which a trolley problem can be taken out of the abstract and into the a, a real actual choice that someone has to 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 reason with right yeah but i still um, don't think she has all the data <laughs> I, I i don't think she has all the data because of blind spots and and also if you're victoria it's not a question of whether contessa has all the data objectively it's a question of whether you believe sure that she's telling the truth or you don't have like a hundred other reasons why you should you should doubt it, right. right? Like if somebody comes up to you and they're like, "I have a hundred percent certainty that this trolley problem situation is is happening," you're going to be like, "Oh, you're you're a crazy person." I, I yeah, I, like you're either going to have to show me some proof, or and even proof is could just be part of an elaborate hoax, right? So yeah, it, it, it you can't you can't uh, gin up certainty out of out of nothing like that that doesn't work. Yeah, and I mean um, to give Contessa credit, I do think perhaps on some level she's trying right i mean i think she's certainly more than in the past right she has this whole moment where she gives this speech about how um i i've only stopped and made choices for myself five times since cauldron began three of those times the outcomes were catastrophic one of them led to my being capture the other two times the outcomes were neutral here with the stakes as high as they are i won't gamble and i won't make my decision my own decision about what victory is um so she's saying I, I'm, I've, I've shown that I'm bad at this in the past, so I'm going to leave it up to you. I'm going to be democratic, quote unquote, but Mm -hmm. that's kind of bullshit, isn't it? Like, I just like, like, I, 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 I think she's downplaying her blind spots. Like, I think the idea that, yeah, I mean, I can't see them, but like, I've, 
simulated them enough to where like I'm pretty sure that I'm right. But not a hundred like but we're like I just like I, I don't I don't think I don't think that the trolley like the trolley problem we're we're given here is as explicitly um this is this is all the data and this is the only way it can happen. And this is the, you, you truly have to choice pre- choose yeah. between these three and only these three options and nothing else. I just don't, I don't buy that. I don't, right. I don't, I reject that hypothesis basically. So, so, so I could go on a tangent about why I agree and, and that the blind spots are, are probably way worse than she realizes specifically because the situation has been like created with her in mind. Sure. Su- such that like, teacher's going to leverage those blind spots in ways where they're going to mess up her ability to model them. Yeah. Um, but, but I don't think we even need to go that far because sure. I think the point is that, um, the situation is, is definitely out, out of, out of control. Like, I mean, it, it would be like, I guess I'll be surprised if, if Contessa actually does deliver one of these three options, as she has stated it, it's, it's possible. I think that, I think that while, I trust while to make it interesting either way. Sure. Um, my like current suspicion is that, is that, uh, something will come out of the woodwork. I don't, I don't know. Seamerg shows up suddenly or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and it's derailed and we, and we don't quite get any of these three, you know, maybe, it, maybe it looks like one of them. I don't know, but, but I, I think that, I think that the, I think that the story I don't know I don't know Weibo does a lot of interesting things and he, he always surprises me so I'm not going to say like it's sure. definitely going to be this way and I, and I um, fully admit that this is that the the point of this section might literally just be no what I've done here is create a situation in which all all data is known and you must mm-hmm. choose based on this data and in which case that fucking sucks right <laughs> but so, I I have a hard time I have a hard time fully agreeing with that well and so so then so then that kind of opens up like the second tranche of the discussion like because there's sort of two discussions right like sure. first discussion is like do you trust it D- do you play the game second discussion is like all right let's assume let's assume that you have no other you have no better option than to pick one of these like e- even if you don't trust that it's true yeah you have no better option than to pick one so then what do you pick and and even so like this is a take that i haven't actually seen much of but 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 it's my issue is like you can really make these sound you can make any one of these three options sound better than the others by just kind of like changing the wording and that's kind of weird like I, I, like <laughs> oh, like do, so so one you, thing i know are you trying to say that contessa like deliberately worded these in deliberate ways just to deliberately fuck with the people that she's throwing this decision on is that what you're saying it, well it's possible sure i mean i think i think what made me notice this is that um, I, I, I've seen a lot more people in, in chat and so forth and Reddit and whatever, um, voting for the one that results in all the civilian deaths. And I'm like, you mean B, um, option B. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, that's, or, or, or saying that, or saying that the heroes are going to pick that one. And I'm like, no, 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 no way would the heroes pick this one. And I'm, I'm and going to like, we're going to play a game in a bit. I'm going to declare right now. I don't think a single hero picks option B. 
I, I'm and, not a single, not a single one of breakthrough picks this option. No. So, so that's what's interesting is like I see people in, in, in chat picking option B and saying the heroes are going to pick option B. And then when I read what they're saying, I'm like, oh, like like you and I just have different understandings of what these options are relative to each other. Like different people read different things into like the city does okay, but the villains are going to rule. That's not her exact language, but like the, the, the idea of the villains ruling. Some people just think that's much worse than mm-hmm. other people do. Sure. Yeah. Um, people have different assumptions walking into this and it leads to different, it, it's not a matter of like the objective ranking. It's a matter of your subjective reaction to how Contessa has laid out this extremely complex and multifaceted outcome in like three sentences. Yeah. Which is maybe why you shouldn't, pawn this decision off on a group of people like yeah i I, like i i like i don't i don't want to like say contessa's bullshit or anything but Uh i think the decision to say well every time i've chosen i've fucked it up so it's your like i'm gonna tell you all this information and i'm gonna i'm gonna detach responsibility from it like you i've told you how it works now it's your choice now is just like you you put information into the world and then say other people you deal with it and tell me what you want to do um and like it's like she's taking no ownership of any of this at all none of it and Uh that that rubs me the wrong way i mean there's also the factor that i don't even think contessa is the one necessarily verbalizing these uh phrasings like if she's trusting her char- her shard to, to come up with even the phrasing of it, then I'm like, OK, you, you've abdicated even the part of this where you were going to be responsible for posing the yeah. choice to them. Yeah, I mean, we don't know one way or the other whether that's true, but I wouldn't doubt, I, I wouldn't uh, be surprised if it was. I mean, one of the thing we know for sure about Contessa from her interlude way back in Worm is is this kind of. Um, this petrification when it comes to making decisions, right? Mm -hmm. Um, This, this absolute fear that this power wonderfully slotted itself into and said, well, you don't have to, here's all the decisions for you. Um, And, and when that, that wonderful beat, and I love that Wildbo did this, was take her power away from her temporarily and watch how she reacts. And she's almost like completely like terrified yeah. And, and and almost frozen in an action because she doesn't know what to do when she actually has to make the choice herself because the, the choices they've just been made for her. I want an ice cream cone. Well, here's how you do it. You don't have to make any choices. Here's how you do it. Yeah. Here's an ice cream right. cone. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's fascinating. And I think that's what we're playing off of here is that that the idea of making and look, the idea of having to make this choice is terrible for anyone, for anyone. Like and, and, and I'm not saying like I'm not saying. I blame Contessa for looking for, for asking her power, the stuff and then going, fuck, (laughs) this is, this is all bad. I don't want to have to be the one to do this, but then to turn to other people and go, so you, you, you do it. (laughs) I I don't like that either. I I will tip my hat to Wildbo for coming up with three options that all suck. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They're they're very well contrived. Like I, I, I really like them. There's, Every time you think one seems better, another beat of that one falls out where you're like, oh, shit. Like I love right. like the last one. There's that wonderful moment where he illustrates this with Imp again, the audience surrogate, I think, throughout this chapter where he's like, OK, well, this happens and this happens and and nobody from the Undersiders dies. And Imp goes, all right, fuck, yeah, this is the one. But one heartbroken. And she's like, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> 
and I think right. again, audience surrogate, like that's as we move through each and every one of these, we think we've got a hold on it. We think it's like we've got a clear idea on this is the one, and then no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. So Matt, back to the topic at hand. Let's, let's, yeah. Pretend you had to choose. What do you pick? Um, see, I, 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 if I had to choose, like if it was a gun to the head situation, I would probably literally just say um and and like let's say that i was one of the people who was at risk of dying um i would probably go with um a because it results in the least net utilitarian losses and and then and then this is when you say oh come on matt you're saying you would make the brave self-sacrificing choice in a situation like this (laughs) and i would say well i can't actually know that but like like that that's the best answer I can give sitting in my armchair. Sure. Um as for what I would actually make in that situation, I'd probably shit myself and I'd pick whichever one got me out of the situation. I would probably just climb into Sveta's box if I'm being honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, did you have an answer? Um forced to make an option, I'd probably pick C, and I don't even know why mm. I I would go, like I just like I look at A as like mass hero death. B is like mass civilian death and Mm -hmm. C is like the, 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 the baby bears porridge where it's just, just, Uh it's not too, it's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just, and like that to me is like maybe the cop out answer. I I don't know. I don't know. Well, well that, that's, that's one of the ones that makes me notice how much the word choice affects things when she says like moderate losses, like moderate is literally a weasel word that means nothing. <laughs> what, what is, what is moderate losses to like, okay, you said, you said hundreds of thousands in the one case. And then you said moderate is moderate. She does, she does define, she does define civilian losses as 4,000. I believe. I don't think she goes into detail about okay. the hero's losses. I didn't write that down. Yeah. It's 4,000. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, Okay, well, good for her then. <laughs> that was going to be one of my complaints, but yeah, I guess that's a little bit more concrete. Yeah. All right. I mean, do you, so shall, shall we pick for all, for all the heroes? But my my picks are pretty easy. I don't know about yours. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm right, but like, I kind of think that all of our heroes are going to pick A, except I'm except for Kinsey and Ashley, who are going to be much more reluctant to put each other at risk. I think this um, is funny because <laughs> I think our our picks for what we think they're going to pick reflect what what we picked. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's also the fact that like um I I don't think I am at all factoring into my thinking here the fact that they have like we just talked about how they've been through hell and yeah. just been ground down. Yeah. for for chapters and chapters and arcs like like a couple arcs now. So like we're, we and I don't have the energy to like reevaluate all my choices, but like this isn't this isn't stalwart Victoria. This is this is post uh, re-traumatization by Amy Victoria. So yeah. like, yeah, I don't know. So do you have but like yeah. do you have like a specific breakdown or no? I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm still going to go Ashley, with Ashley Kenzie. I think Ashley and Kenzie are are going to vote. Um, uh, da, 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 probably C. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, let me say the ones I'm most confident about. First of all, I want to say like, we're going to talk about Sveta for a while in a bit, but, uh, I'm going to say Sveta does not participate. Uh, that's, that's my answer for that. I don't think she's going to say one or the other. 
Um, I think Byron definitely chooses C. I think it's it's the middle it's the it's the middle of the road choice and sorry Byron <laughs> I think that's where you're gonna go with um, I think Victoria chooses C as well um, I think Rain chooses A because Rain's our self sacrifice buddy um, I think I think you're right about Ashley I think she chooses C because she's not willing to roll the dice on a wait is that what you said i can't remember now yeah i think that she doesn't want to put okay i'm gonna write this um, down as i'm going the people i think she i think ashley i guess my idea is that ashley cares more about the people in her immediate circle of of uh concern than Mm -hmm. about random civilians yeah so ashley chooses c um i think kenzie's See, because Kenzie's choice is weird to me because on the one hand, like, I think maybe she wouldn't have been as worried about the heartbroken. Maybe she's mad at them. Like, so wait, do do you think the chicken nuggets count as heartbroken? In Uh, in, in this, this, I don't know. And do you think Aiden counts as an undersider in this? Um, I think that as far as Kenzie is concerned, they very well might and that's probably enough for her okay okay um i mean i think i think c has the most amount of breakthrough shit happening to it so i feel like kenzie's not gonna want to do that Mm -hmm. i feel like kenzie's gonna go a or b this is terrible audio i'm sorry (laughs) yeah i mean I, i i think i think the idea that kenzie chooses B um and hundreds of thousands of civilians dying is 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 like th- that was actually my first thought about Kenzie and then I kind of like actually I'm going to revise and say that Kenzie chooses B yeah because, I'm going to say that too yeah I like because that. it's more interesting <laughs> <laughs> so we've got Victoria choosing C Rain choosing A Byron choosing C Kenzie choosing B Ashley choosing C Sveta not participating uh our only open one is Tristan um is Tristan out right now? Let's uh, let's just it doesn't matter. Let's let's yeah. let's guess for him. He's a different person than Byron. He deserves a different guess. Yes. And I don't see him siding with Byron here. I think Tristan's going to choose A. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Okay. So so interestingly, um, the only places where we actually disagreed is that you think Victoria chooses C, whereas I thought A. You think Byron chooses C, whereas I thought A. I. I I, I kind of buy your arguments in both cases. Um, it, it's it, I can see them going either way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think we actually basically agree on um, Kenzie and, and Ashley. So. Okay, cool. Cool. All right. Well, we did it, guys. And we're I'm sure we're 100%. The funny thing about this is the chapter's out. And so, like, everyone that's listening to this right now knows if we're wrong or not. And they're probably just laughing at us. Yeah. And that's, that's fine. That's fine. That's, that's like, literally the point, actually. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, like, uh, you know, as, as you were saying, Sveta is consistently skeptical and she's going so far as to accuse Contessa of being part of teachers games uh, meant to just distract them with, you know, b- by throwing these trolley problems at her. Um, and Contessa's like, yeah, you know, maybe, but get in this box over here. And, uh, and Sveta does that. Yeah. And, and like, remember, we were talking about like how we're kind of teleporting back to worm time. Now yeah. Sveta is here uh, in, in a small encased thing again. Right. It was the ball right. back in worm. And now she's 
encased in this little box. Um, and we've kind of just effectively wormed our way back to worm. Um, <laughs> yeah, right, right. I think it was, was it the Sveta going in the box thing that made you kind of first ask that question? Yeah. And we put together that list of other yeah, things. That was it. Yeah. 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 And, and I want to, I want to spend some time on this because I think Sveta, like, I think in Sveta's reaction to this thing was the thing that caused me to go back and forth the most in this chapter, because there were moments where I was like, absolutely. Fuck. Yes. Veta, you're totally right. This is bullshit. This is ridiculous. This sucks. It's it's I'm furious at Contessa. We shouldn't even participate in this thing. It's ridiculous. And then there are times when I'm like, well, Sveta, I mean, this is her, this is how her power works. Like what, what are we going to do here? Are we just going to not do anything? Um, and, and I, I don't, I, I kind of left it up to real time decision-making to see where I was going to eventually land uh-huh. on this thing. And I think after our entire conversation, after everything we've been through, I'm kind of, I'm kind of on Sveta's side here. I'm kind of on Sveta's side that, that what, 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 what Contessa has done here is, is kind of, it's kind of bullshit. Like, here's the thing. I don't think human beings are actually like, like designed or, or created or evolved to be able to make decisions like this. Like, I just think it like, we don't, that's not how we, that's not how the decision-making process in a human being actually works in real yeah. time. Right. Like just like that. It's, it, that's not, that's not how it works. And so like yeah. to throw this to a bunch of people and just be like, Hey, yeah. I mean, my, my joke answer, which is actually my serious answer. If it was actually Contessa would be like, Hey Contessa, ask your power, which option I would pick give, <laughs> given arbitrarily, arbitrarily long to think about it and access to like resources to, um, to put to to organize my thoughts and ask people for advice. Yeah, and then tell me what that answer is, and then that's my answer. Sure, because I'm not going to do a better job than that. Running around scared for my life right now, and and yes, in some in some like computationalist sense, uh, I am responsible for that answer, whatever it is. But at least I'll know that I put thought into it. Yeah. that way, you know. Yeah, and and like from a like a from a thematic and story and a narrative driven kind of way, the idea that Ward is going to come fully around to this opinion that actually the way Cauldron did things turns out it's just, just the right way to do it. Like, I just, I don't, I, I don't actually see the book doing that. Right. Uh, I mean, that would be an interesting twist. Right. Like um. I, I just like, and, and that's not to say that Sveta is being entirely fair here. I, I think Sveta is, is charged with emotion because she's standing in front of one of the people who is primarily responsible for what happened to her. Um, and so she's very emotional. She's very upset. Um, but as we said earlier, she is the living embodiment of what these consequences are. Like it's, it's one thing to talk about numbers in these abstract ways, um, or to talk about the people that die in these abstract ways. We're glossing over the, the suffering that's going to happen here and not just to the people that die, but the people that are left behind, but to the, to the people that suffer indefinitely, a person under option a is going to suffer indefinitely. A person under option C is going to suffer for uh, an uh, like unspecified length of time. (laughs) That is not, that is not forever, but definitely not like, like a 
hey, just like a couple hours. Just like they're yeah. going to time out for a couple hours. Like, like it's a fascinating thing for the story to do, to take Sveta of all sure. people and put her in the situation of like, good news, you've you've been uh, drafted into basically Cauldron now, and you don't get the option to abstain, basically. Right. Because, because we're in this situation, and the only way out of the situation is using the super powerful precog. So. Yeah, and, and the idea that she's just going to be like, yeah, you you, you ha- if you don't answer, then it's your fault now, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I don't know. Like, I just, I I love like part of this is that I love Sveta, and I think I, I realized when you know racking my brain around this thing that I my my mindset aligns with Sveta more than any other character in this in this story, um, and I love her, and and. I recognize that there are places when she's being unfair. Like there's a moment where she says, you know, can't we just hope that everything's going to be okay? Can't we just hold on to the hope that everything's going to be okay? And I think that is a wonderful, powerful, sentimental, heroic thing, right? To, to hold on to hope even at the end. Um, that is, that is something that Tolkien wrote about so much in Lord of the Rings, right? Like that, that, that hope is this idea that Tolkien loved and that like hope is not to him. Hope is fighting even though you've already lost, right? Like that, that's what the characters do. It's like, like even though they've definitely a hundred percent for sure lost, they're going to keep fighting anyway. And it is in that, that moment that they win. Right. And I mean, yeah. And I, I think that's a wonderful, powerful thing. However, however, <laughs> however, it's not it's not an action. It's not. Yeah, it's not taking action. It's not doing anything. And what I would like Svet, what I would like Svet to see Sveta to do here is not just remove herself from the equation, not just say this is bullshit and grumble and crawl into a box, but to actively like take agency and and fight for what she what she believes is right here um, to to. to to say, Hey, like to keep, to keep this up, to not just like resign herself to this choice and say like, Oh no, if we hope everything will be okay. No, like, like fight for what you believe in fight for what you think is the right way to do this. If you think this is wrong, if you think this is bullshit, if you think this is fucked up, do something about it. And I think that's, that's the Sveta that I want to see because I think that's, that's a, a clear indication of me that Sveta is different from the person she was that stepped back and didn't say anything and let, and let what happened with the irregulars happen, right? Um, that yeah. the Sveta that says, "Can't we just hope everything's going to work out?" is the Sveta that lets the irregulars break into Cauldron and and murder people. Um, I would hope that Sveta has moved beyond that point, and and that's the person I want to see. And so while I am on her side here, I, I wish she w- was a little bit more active in this moment than just than just kind of resigning herself against this. And I think it's probably because like she's desperately looking for support on this and nobody's giving it to her. Even Victoria is like, well, yeah, I mean, that'd be great. But what if this is just the way it is? Meh. Meh. Yeah. I mean, you make a great point about, about how this relates to her general arc and, and just the fact that we, we, you know, narratively speaking are expecting to see her take a bold stand about something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is an opportunity for that. I do. Yeah, I, I guess just like pragmatically, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I feel like if she tried to stand up to Contessa, then Contessa would just be like, 
uh, here's what happens if you do your plan. Everyone dies. <laughs> and uh, uh, the whole world explodes. Yeah, but my so response. So do you want to do that or do you want to do one of my three options? But my response to that would be you can't know that. Not for sure. And she'd you, be like, yeah, yeah, I can. No, no, I don't believe <laughs> well, that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, with the blind spots and everything, you're right. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, like, like that, that's the thing is because nobody's taking Sveta's side, there is nobody there to be like, but what about the blind spots? But what about the fact that she could be lying? But what about the fact that this could be a distraction? But what about, like, uh, Kenzie, uh, did I say Kenzie? Uh, Sveta has some great points. Um, but everyone is like shell-shocked, right? Yeah, I think that's one of the things, you know, talking just about the writing is that, is what this this chapter does a really good job of is is showing that how how shell shocked Victoria is that, yeah. that like like we talked earlier about how passive she is and and from this from the Contessa entering the store I mean Contessa literally jumps into the story and like rips agency from everyone and just starts ordering everyone around in a way that they become completely passive and Victoria herself just kind of falls into it like yeah. as we move into the latter half of the book where she's setting up her big trap for custodian. Our our main character is like like trying to like trying to come up with like questions to ask or reasons why or or ways to feel. And while all that's happening, she's just doing everything that she says. Like, here, hold this dog. Okay, here, go over here. Okay. And she just like just totally resigned to all of it in a way that that is like is is this kind of like just like it. Yeah, it's just it's just total like it's shell shock. Yeah, let, let's let's move on from discussing sure, the, sure. the 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 questions specifically, and talk about about how, like the tone there because like yeah, so the team the team meets up with the rest of the undersiders plus harbingers and, and mortari capes, and then the next scene is basically like you said, Contessa setting up her Rube Goldberg machine in the background, uh, just kind of giving orders: fill that eleva- elevator shaft with water, take this dog, stand over there, use the force field when this happens. <laughs> uh, Kenzie, here are the passwords. Like. Just kind of, and, and we and we know exactly what she's doing, and I think Victoria does too. Like she's she's setting up the pieces for what's about to happen, um, and it does have this really interesting tone where the the breakthrough members are just kind of like wandering around passively following the orders yep. while they think and talk about the question that's been put to them. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really it, it is really a, like a testament to to the ability of this book and its author to to handle tone here, where you mm-hmm. just you just kind of feel this this lost spacey floatiness in the writing itself. Like you just feel like, like, like if this was a, if this was a, a movie, this, the sound would kind of be muted. Like, you know, the, the same yeah. private Ryan, like ringing explosion noise uh-huh. where he kind of just spaces out and you hear the, the pitch noise and all the other noise is muted. That's kind of the feeling I get from the writing that, 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 that exact, that exact way they depicted shell shock in that movie. Um, I, I, I think that just the way the way things are described just captured that to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. It's, it's, it's great. And it's upsetting. Like it's, you're you're like mad. You're like mad at the book because you're like, Contessa is supposed to fix everything. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you, you along with the characters are just in this like, Oh no. Yeah. And I think, I I think it plays off of, uh, it plays off our emotions in that way, right? Because yeah, of course Contessa was never going to fix everything. We're talking about Contessa, Matt. This is the person who started Cauldron. <laughs> like it, it was never, it was never going to be like a cool, like, Oh, this is easy. Yay. We did it. Like it was yeah. never going to be that. But in our desperation 
after after watching some of the most powerful characters get the shit kicked out of them, after watching uh, the team that we love uh, suffer and even even their wins felt like losses, after watching all these stuff, all we wanted was someone to come in with an easy I win button. And and we were given that only to have it flipped on its head. And I think yeah. that that is um, a wonderful kind of bait and switch of of the writing that I think just works to to make this feel more impactful, make this hurt harder uh, and make this more frustrating. And I understand, like, I think I understand people reading this and, and being super frustrated with the book. I get that. Uh, I, I think that's what the book wants you to do. Oh, oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is one of those moments when I appreciate the book challenging me rather than taking what I think of as like a fan fiction approach of like, how do I make this fun? It's like, Oh, this isn't going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be painful. Mm-hmm. And that's the fact that Wild is willing to take it there is what makes me mm-hmm. love this story. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen with these choices. There's a part of me that super respects a story that takes three impossible choices like this and, and doesn't blink on it. Doesn't give an easy out. Doesn't like have a, 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 a thing pop in and say, actually, Hello, my name is New Cape, and my name is right. Option D. <laughs> right. And like, 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 I, I, I appreciate that. Like, I think one of the things, you know, speaking of, I, I enjoy the movie Age of Ultron. I think it's a, a good movie, and I think it's like unnecessarily hated in the MCU. But one of the things that really frustrates me about that movie is they set up this this beautiful dilemma in that the Avengers had to choose whether or not to uh, blow up this this chunk of land uh, in the sky, killing a bunch of people, but saving the world or letting it crash into the ground and say and and killing everybody. Um, and that's that's a tough dilemma for heroes to do. And then the movie gives them a helicarrier showing up that that magically solves all their problems um, uh-huh. and re- and removes that dilemma from the characters. And I, I, I don't think that's what the story is going to do. And I respect it for not doing that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see, though. Um, so the team writes down their answers and, uh, and they, well, we don't, we don't see their votes, no. but they, they write down their answers anyway. Yeah, if we saw their votes, the whole game we played would have been considerably less interesting. Yes. <laughs> um, um, I, I do like that not everyone does this, but Victoria writes hers down on her hand. Um, and I like the symbolic nature of like the choices literally in their hands. Um, yeah. As she, she writes her choice on her hand. That's, that's really Love good. It. Yeah. Yeah. Or or the blood is on their hands. Sure. Conversely. Sure. Yeah. Is did she write in red ink? I don't. Remember. I don't know. Uh, so then uh, the custodian collapses a vast part of the facility around them. It's pretty awesome. Everybody's basically fine because of the Contessa maneuvering. Um, but now they are isolated in a large open space, completely surrounded by armed thralls. Yeah. I. I I think this is cool. The, the The explosion is really cool because, yeah, they're completely unharmed. Everything works perfectly. And I think this is like a really great moment where we're leaving this chapter and this decision on our characters' heads. And then just for fun, Wild Bill goes, OK, you have to make this choice. But once again, here's a reminder of how fucking awesome this chick is. Like she just saved all your lives via yeah. this via her power here. So it's like you might have doubts about the situation, but here's an example of exactly why she's as powerful as she says she is. Right. It's, it's a great punctuation mark. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And, and then she turns to them and badassedly is like, make up your minds. Yep. And then, you know, commences, commences fighting yep. hundreds of people. I agree. Yeah. Um, 
All right, that was that. A couple of awesome chapters, a, a classic wild bow moral dilemma. Yeah, yeah. I, we, ha- I mean, I'm not going to say that there haven't been moral dilemmas in this book, but I, I don't think they've felt as like clearly like like uh, confusion inducing as this one in a while. Yeah, yeah. I should say trilemma actually. There you um, go. Yeah, there you yeah, go. Because it is. All right. So the discussion question from last week was. Describe an example of a time when Wildbow when a Wildbow character undergoes change without the character themselves realizing it. Um, and I, I was really really happy with, uh, with the answers because I, I hadn't hadn't really thought of these. But I, I think yeah. Um, yeah. So so uh, Sarah Penguin says Parian starts off as someone who hates conflict and avoids making her needs known. Her trigger event is basically about avoiding conflict and not making her needs known. Uh, in in Ward, though, Parian insists that Tattletail make amends for Rain uh, for using Rain as cradle bait and tells Victoria to stop her be a hero sales pitch. Uh, she's also able to fight Nursery without you know undue panicking. Uh, so in the background, Parian has become more accustomed to conflict. Yeah, that's I like a, that. I I never would have thought of that, but that's really true. Yeah. Uh, Megafire does an interesting thing here. He talks about defiant. And the first time I saw the word defiant, I immediately assumed that we were referring to the character change he makes by the end of the story. But I, I like Megafire's answer a lot here. Defiant went on a long rant about him and Mannequin are nothing alike. And then he proceeded to turn himself into a cyborg. And even with other characters pointing it out to him, he never quite acknowledges it. And this is great because, yeah, I mean, it's like this is a change that he was undergoing, you know, before his turn at the end of the story to become a, a, a better, a better person. But yeah, I, I think that is absolutely true that the, the irony of that situation was wonderful. Yeah. I think, I think irony is exactly the right word. Yeah. Beard of Valor talks about uh, Ashley as someone who has tried to do everything on her own and who now asks for what she needs from others, accepts responsibility and even accepts orders from trusted friends. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, I wonder I wonder if she would acknowledge the change. That's a that's a that's a good thing to think about, you know? Would yeah. she if you asked her, Hey Ashley, you know, how have you changed over the course of these last fifteen arcs? Would she say, Oh, well here's blah 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 or would she say, I haven't changed at all. I'm the same person I've always been. I'm just fucking awesome and you all know it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely the the case of of the existing damsel clone to act as a contrast. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. This is an interesting question. Yeah. Uh, Chariago says Lily. Lily is quick to shut down Rain's suggestion of personality bleed through, but we know from May's interlude that her cluster absolutely has bleed through. Yeah, that's a good, yeah. that's a good kind of literal interpretation. I like that. So it's, yeah, it's basically just a case of uh, Lily is completely in denial about the fact that her personality has changed. Yep. <laughs> personality changed because she absorbed May's seriousness. Yep. At least that's May's take. And I th- kind of took that at face value, I actually. Don't think, yeah, I don't so. think there's any reason to, to doubt that. Yeah, yeah. Lost Man 138 says, Rain has ironically become the good soldier that the fallen wanted him to be. He follows orders. He cuts his hair short. He doesn't complain and he kicks ass under Victoria's leadership. He even makes a good soldier instead of just a good soldier. I like that a lot. That's really clever. Cool. Data snake 69. Nice says Lisa uniquely fails to notice that she's changed for the better. 
Take her conversation with Taylor in 19.7. In the past 48 hours, Lisa has outsmarted a criminal mastermind, helped save a small child from a lifetime of slavery, figured out that the triumvirate was involved with Cauldron, proven that she understands the powers of Faultline's crew better than Faultline herself, and come up with a way for humanity to evacuate when the world ends. And in her own words, I still feel like the stupid, self-obsessed little child who let her big brother die. You know what's sadder than someone who refuses to change for the better? Someone who actually does it, but can't tell. <laughs> that, that that sentence alone makes me uh, glad that I chose this question. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And finally, Wanson says, Love Lost and Snag at least temporarily changed when Cradle gave them his tokens, and they sure didn't realize it. That is I mean, true. It's a major plot point that they didn't realize it. <laughs> <laughs> or or I guess you could say they sort of realized it, but they sort of misattributed it entirely. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah but it, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting one. Cool. So uh, the new discussion question for this week is, uh, which option do you choose yeah, and why? Yeah, guys, here, here's, here's the time. Come up with the best option and explain why you picked it. Um, yep. I am really, I mean, we ran a poll on the, our Twitter and saw what people chose. So um, it seems like mo- it, w- it was a very contentious race between C and B on the poll. So I'm interested to see what our listeners uh, that that typically right into the discussion question choose here yeah all right that's all we got for you this week on we've got ward you guys are all part of this show so feel free to provide us with advice questions or thoughts on this week's reading you can reach out to us via our email account at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on our Twitter, at GotWormPod. Uh, Twitter is also a great place to follow us for uh, show schedule changes and announcements and that kind of thing. The last two weeks, it's been a little weird. Um, so uh, you can follow us there just to know if anything weird's happening. You can also follow uh, my personal Twitter, at ScottDaily85. And Matt's, is that more mail? Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you want to catch schedule changes, you can always go to uh, doofmedia.com slash calendar, by the way. Um, that's generally kept quite quite up to date yeah uh, thank you to uh to scott for doing that actually that's uh elise thank you to that, my wonderful wife that, for yes. working very hard to keep our calendar up to date we really yes. appreciate it thank you for thank you to elise too uh and if you're not already subscribed to this podcast we recommend you do so uh you can find us on itunes stitcher youtube google play and anywhere else that you can listen to podcasts and as always you can find this and all the other shows we do over at our website doofmedia.com especially our newest show Media MD, go check that out, please. Yeah, do. I think yeah, you guys will like it. Like, yeah, just just again, like scroll through. They certainly will have covered a show that you are interested in. Um, they they're really funny. They have a great dynamic, and and I love. Once you start listening, you'll understand kind of uh, the basis of the show, and I think it's a really cool idea. Um, so yeah, if you want to support Media MD or any other doof show. Uh, consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you cool bonuses like the ability to vote in our fan art contests, Q&A sessions uh, with me and Scott and, um, and maybe, maybe others at some others. point. Yeah. And access to live streams of our recording sessions uh, where you can hang out with, uh, you know, other other uh, Parahumans fans in the chat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, our excellent Discord chat where you can hang out with those people all day. <laughs> um, and, as always, make sure you, you head over to Wildbo's uh, Patreon at patreon.com slash Wildbo and donate to him as well because this is his world. We are just faced with moral dilemmas in it. Oof. 
And this week, special thanks to new patrons, Bidoofs at the $1 level, James N., Matthew M., and Pavlos P. Uh, appreciate that, y'all. Thank yep. you so much. And then new Doof Troop member, Sir Graug, who has up, upgraded to the $10 level. Thanks, Sir Graug. Thank you. Um, really appreciate that. And new Doof Warrior, Jay Maniac, who has upgraded to the $20 level. Um, wow, thank you, thanks. everyone. Um, as always, I'm, I'm flattered and honored. Yeah, and we are just just a, 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 a like three dozen patrons away from our next goal, which is our Dark Tower episode or episode, <laughs> our Dark Tower <laughs> show where we're going to dive real deep into Stephen King's magnum opus. Um, so if you are at all interested in that show and you are not already a patron, it's never been a better time. Um, help us help us do that. I'm very excited about that show and we're so close. So, yeah, thanks, guys, for everything you do. Uh, we only do this because of you. So we really appreciate it. Yeah. And as you can, if you cannot afford to donate right now, that's of course. Okay. There are tons of ways to help us out. You can share the podcast on your social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, anywhere. Uh, and you can of course always help us out by heading on over to Apple podcasts or stitcher, or, you know, frankly, if there's any other, (laughs) any other podcast catcher applications out there, uh, that also let you leave reviews, do it there too. And then email me and tell me where it is. So it doesn't take me two years to find your review. Uh, this week we have a review from Martian Maneater who gives us five stars and says, uh, this is a long one guys. So phenomenal analysis that really hits the spot as someone who read worm at least 13 times before listening to this podcast. Yes, I know that's a lot of times I've always lamented that too few of my friends are willing to read and discuss this amazing book and even fewer want to dive into a critical analysis of the text. Matt and Scott combined combed through worm with an even finer more honed comb than i it really served to show how beneficial it is to discuss rich texts with people who view things differently and how many wonderful subtle threads different different perspectives can highlight i've loved every minute of disagreement or revelation that we've got worm ward has brought to my ears it turns out the tailor may have done some things wrong but it really chafes to admit it the biggest benefit to listening to we've got ward while reading ward at the same pace is that i am constantly in mind of just how unreliable the narrator is this is an old review so um i i'm not sure how i feel about that anymore but i i understand your point i love the doubt that this casts on perspectives and weight of importance a given narrator will read into various details and events i love that this podcast throws even more light on the complex details and life that Wibbleblow writes into each character setting and scene this podcast made me feel like someone else understands the investment and internal screaming that i go through which each new intense moment in ward We've Got Ward is an excellent way to enjoy these delicious facts. No one is okay. Everyone is a time bomb. Shards are jerks. Superpowers don't fix problems they are trying to solve. Womble Mild drops hints in the background 10 arcs ago, and you really need Scott to point it out to you because you missed it on your first read-through. And lastly, oh no. (laughs) Listen to this podcast and dive in with its community to really revel in your need to share the excitement of wild child stories with other people who are just as invested as you are. If you enjoy breaking things down with a critical perspective while never stopping the emotional roller coaster, this is the podcast for you. Whew, Martian Maneater, that was an essay and we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. That's that's very, it's very touching. Um, Uh, it's always happy to have brought enough enjoyment into someone's life that they are, uh, feel compelled to write that nice of a compliment for yeah, us. Yeah, My face is all red right now and yeah. I don't know how to deal with it. I can't take yeah. compliments, but I so appreciate 
you, Martian Maneater, and everyone else, everyone that has left us a review, everyone that listens, everyone that, that disagrees with us and agrees with us. I'm sure there's going to be both of those things this week. Uh, we appreciate all of you. Yes, and we welcome it. Uh, that's it for this week's show. We'll be back next week at our normal time I with did, our normal... I did it again. I did it again. <laughs> with, with our normal number of chapters, weirdly. Uh, and uh, yeah, anyway, Mark 15. Oh, I love this art. <laughs> Thank you.